Welcome to another video in our Reformed Pillars series. Today we resume looking at covenant theology, the second pillar of Reformed theology. We began looking at it last week, and last week uh, acknowledging that this is uh, very much a survey, a, a, a satellite image of the doctrine of the covenant. We, we have to start with some kind of definition and how can we think of covenant? I'm suggesting to you that the, the central thing we need to realize when thinking about covenant theology is that a covenant is an official relationship. Westminster Confession of Faith talks about it as the, the way God condescends to enter a relationship with us. It's an official relationship. Uh, so it, in that thought, has both the intimacy of real friendship, as we think about covenant theology, in fact, adoption is an important aspect of this relationship. It's very intimate, and yet it's also legal. It's official. It's not just a, uh, a nod of the head. It's an official handshake. It's the piece of paper, the license, uh, the agreement. Uh, the document that declares we are in a relationship and we're both committed to it before, uh, not just in our emotions, but before uh, the, the king, the judge, uh, the power that is. Um, so we think about covenant theology, it's this official relationship. Uh, secondly, I was encouraging us to realize that covenant theology has to do with an official relationship which is secured and guaranteed by the promises of God. Secured and guaranteed by the promises of God. Third, that it is an official relationship that is administered uh, through sanctions or expectations. Uh, there are laws attached but it's important for us to note that while that is uh, how this is administered, the guarantee or the assurance that we have in this covenant is not the sanctions, the laws, the expectations, but rather the promises of God himself. And then fourth, I'm encouraging us to think about covenant theology as an official relationship that is through representation a mediator, uh, someone to stand between God and the people. Last week, as we thought about these, we thought about the first uh, two covenants in Reformed Covenant theology. First, the covenant of redemption, which is a covenant between God the Father and God the Son uh, before the foundation of the world in which the Holy Trinity engages to redeem fallen creatures. Uh, this is a, a covenant which uh, is very mysterious. We don't have a lot of scripture texts uh, detailing the history, but we do know that there was a, a plan which the Father had before the foundation of the world, and that it was a plan to redeem in Christ. So we also talked about the covenant of works or the covenant of life in the garden. Uh, the covenant of works or the covenant of life in the garden is a covenant that was made between God and humanity before the fall. The mediator or the representative in that covenant is Adam. 
And unfortunately, of course, we know how that covenant ended. The requirement was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. And Adam ate of that tree. But then we come today to the third of the covenants dealt with in Reformed Covenant theology, the covenant of grace. And it begins right there on the same piece of real estate, the garden, where Adam and Eve have just eaten the fruit and the covenant of works was broken. And what do we find right out of the gate in covenant theology? Uh, we find in Genesis 3.15, God make a promise, the promise of the covenant of grace. God says he will send a seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head. Verse 21 of Genesis 3, then God goes on to clothe the naked Adam and Eve with animal skins. In other words, there is blood atonement right there in the garden. Innocent blood shed so that our guilt and shame would be covered. So the covenant of grace begins right there in the garden after the fall. But the covenant of grace encompasses a, a number of other uh, covenant administrations. And so the next and the first that would use the word covenant explicitly is the covenant with Noah or the covenant of preservation, where in Genesis 9, 1 through 17, God uh commits to this relationship with humanity, but also a promise to the creation itself that he will not destroy the world every time there's a wicked generation. Why? Because every generation of men are wicked and they do wickedness continually. And so God commits not to take out his wrath on that wickedness upon the creation over and over and over again. Having sent the flood, he then commits himself to not destroy the whole earth again until the last day, the day of judgment, when the new heavens and the new earth will be brought in and righteousness alone will dwell uh, when he comes to judge the living and the dead. So the covenant of preservation in Genesis 9 finds its fulfillment in Romans 8, uh, 18 through 24, uh, Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Then next comes the covenant of promise or the covenant with Abraham. This is found in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. And uh, there God commits, he promises a number of things. One, he promises relationship with Abraham. It is adoptive style language that he uses. And so we could say that the covenant with Abraham promises adoption and it promises also uh, descendants and it promises also an inheritance, all things that feel very closely tied to this idea of adoption into the family of God. It also comes with a promise that it's not only his direct descendants that will be blessed, but in Abraham's seed, all, all nations of the world will be blessed. And probably there, that idea of 
Abraham's seed uh, is to reflect us back to Genesis 3. And so you have the seed of the woman, and now to Abraham, God is saying specifically, the seed will come through your line of humanity. Then we have the covenant with Moses at Mount Sinai, or the covenant with the children of Israel, uh, with Moses as the mediator at Mount Sinai. This is often called the covenant of law, although I, I tend to prefer covenant of gratitude because the law is given in a context. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. The law is given in the context of redemption, and so it's an expression of gratitude. The law is not given there so that we might earn salvation, but rather so that we might express gratitude. And I think a great part of that is uh, tied into Galatians when it talks, uh, where, where Paul talks about the law being a tutor to bring us to Christ, not uh, an instruction on how to live uh, by our own good works, but rather a tutor to draw us along to the grace of God in Christ. Well, then the next covenant, the major covenant, there are a bunch of little things throughout the Old Testament, uh, but the next major covenant administration is the covenant with David. We could maybe call it a covenant of kingdom or crown or throne, but it's the covenant with David found in 2 Samuel 7. Now, in 2 Samuel 7, the word covenant is not used explicitly, but in Psalm 89, reflecting on what God said in 2 Samuel 7, uh, we have the word covenant explicitly used of this relationship that God is developing and establishing with David. There, uh, of course, uh, the promise is for an eternal throne. And then Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, we find this amazing thought that there will come a day when there will be a new covenant established, a covenant better than all that went before. Uh, the, these are the basic covenants that you find in Scripture. Uh, now, um, they parallel in terms of just uh, period with a number of the uh, dispensations that other viewpoints might have, but what we do with them or the unity that we find among them is what distinguishes Reformed theology. So what distinguishes Reformed covenant theology is the emphasis on unity, that all of this from the garden and the proclamation of the seed of the woman all the way through the new covenant in Christ are one covenant of grace with varying administrations. It's a question of unity versus discontinuity. To put it another way, what do you do with Jeremiah 31 and the new covenant he will establish? Is that covenant all new, distinct, and separate from the other covenants? Or is it the final and greatest administration of the same covenant of grace that was there before, but just better and greater because of who the mediator 
is. Covenant theology says that. It says that this is the final and great administration of that same covenant of grace that went from all the way back at the garden all the way through the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. Uh, if you want to think about these different administrations uh, on Sermon Audio or on our church website, we have a series called um, uh, Catechism Sermons. And there, if you look at the uh, fall of 2020, you'll find a number of sermons. Every single one of them has the word covenant in it. Uh, the first one is in September. I believe the rest of them are November and December of that year. Uh, one for each of these administrations I've just mentioned, and you can sink your teeth in a little bit. You can consider with me Jeremiah 31 in the final of those sermons and think about this unity discontinuity question in more detail. For today, uh, what I want to suggest as we think about covenant uh, unity versus discontinuity between Old and New Testaments um, I would like to suggest to you that, that Reformed Covenant theology historically has presented unity more than discontinuity. That the unity is that the essence of the covenant remains the same. The essence of what the covenant of grace was under each of these administrations, Adam, Noah, Moses, uh, Abraham, Moses, and David and new covenant, it remains the same. And that which is discontinuity, that which changes, is all on the surface. So uh, types and shadows, the confession would say, pointing to Christ. Those types and shadows shift and change from one administration to the next, or are added on to, or are made more explicit. Uh, and uh, some of those types and shadows, the types and shadows, uh, pass away as we come into the new covenant with Christ. But the essence of the covenant of grace remains the same. I think we can get at that with uh, this question. How many ways of salvation does the Bible present? Uh, and I don't mean Paul presenting works as a sparring partner for grace, what I mean is, how many ways of salvation did God present? Did God present Adam and Eve in the garden after the fall with salvation uh, in, by grace or in some other way? Uh, with Abraham, was it by grace through faith or was it in some other way? Uh, when it comes to Noah, was he saved by grace or in some other way? With each of these covenants, we ask that question. The question is, was salvation always by faith in the promise of God, in the sacrifice of innocent blood and the seed of the woman? And the answer is, that essential thing remains the same throughout, if we're taking the scripture at its own word, if we're reading the book of Hebrews, coming to Hebrews 11 and accepting that here are all these people who lived by faith. And the clear emphasis of the book of Hebrews is not just faith in something, but faith in the promises of God, even though Hebrews 11 concludes saying, even though 
They never saw Christ appear. The incarnation didn't happen during their day. The promise didn't arrive in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And yet they lived by faith in the promises of God that anticipated Jesus Christ. And therefore, Hebrews 11's point and Hebrews 12, if this great cloud of witnesses lived by faith in Christ through promises alone, how much more ought we to live by faith who have received Christ in the flesh and seen explicitly the cross and not just the altar and the blood of the Old Testament? So there's a unity here. Let me try to argue this unity of covenants um, using uh, four texts. The first is from Christ's own mouth. In John 8:56, Jesus himself says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. How in the world did Abraham see Christ's day? Well, it was through types and shadows. A ram in the thickets caught by its horns. Uh, but he nonetheless rejoiced to see Christ's day. Why would he rejoice to see Christ's day if the covenant with Abraham was an Old Testament thing and Christ is a New Testament thing for the church and the two shall never meet, then why would Abraham rejoice to see Christ's day? The reality is he was anticipating Christ by faith because his salvation is also by grace through faith in Christ. Uh, another text we could go to is Acts chapter 3. I'm going to actually read some of this and comment on it as I read it. So Acts chapter 3, uh, reading in verses 22 through 26. This is a sermon by the Apostle Peter, and in the midst of it we read, For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who, who will not hear that prof, what that prophet shall utter um, shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Excuse me. Shall be utterly ex destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, who have also foretold these days, you are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers. Let me hit pause right there. He's talking about, uh, he's talking about the Mosaic uh, words of Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy is the text, the, it is the treaty, as has been uh, shown. I, I don't think I remembered to give you a specific scripture text when talking about uh, the covenant with Moses at Sinai, we could say the Ten Commandments, but better, we could say the book of Deuteronomy. It's the book of the covenant. And so, quoting from the book of the covenant in his sermon, Peter reflects on that, and then he says, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers. And if we were to ask, what covenant did God make with our fathers? The immediate context book of Deuteronomy, we would say it's the covenant with Moses. But listen where he goes from here. And of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, in you, in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
So Peter uses this idea of covenant, and in his mind, it ties together the covenant with Moses at Mount Sinai and the covenant of Abraham in Genesis and even hints at the covenant implications of Genesis 3 to Adam and Eve after the fall. And he weaves them all together as the covenant. He doesn't speak about the covenants, but assumes all of these are under one covenant of God's grace. And then listen to where he goes from there. Here's his concluding thought. To you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. The covenant, which is the covenant of Moses and Abraham and Adam and Eve, is the covenant God fulfills in his servant Jesus Christ, who came to take away iniquity. The new covenant. See, Peter's not preaching a sermon where he does contrast here. Well, that was the Old Testament, but now we have Jesus in the New Testament. It's the covenant promise that encapsulates Adam, Abraham, and Moses is the covenant fulfilled in Christ. You could do a similar thing if you flip just uh, one chapter back in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, that famous a sermon of Peter's on the day of Pentecost. And there, Peter goes to great lengths to talk about David and the, the covenant, the, the throne of David and the promise of one to sit on David's throne. All this Davidic covenant language, which is, he makes very clear, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that Christ coming to save sinners is the fulfillment of that promise. And when sinners then cry out, well, what do we do to be saved? The language he uses there in Acts 2, 38 uh, and 39 is language that directly reflects. It's a, it's a clear language connection paraphrase to Genesis 17. So in Genesis 17, the covenant with Abraham is a covenant where uh, the outward expression of that covenant, the visible community is uh, defined as those who are circumcised. And Abraham is told he is to be circumcised. He is to circumcise his two sons, even though one of his sons is not a believer and God tells him so, but his two sons, and then all the strangers or foreigners who live under Abraham's house. And that's exactly the language then carried over by Peter. He takes Abrahamic covenant language, and in the context of a Davidic covenant sermon that ends with Christ as the fulfillment, the great pinnacle of the covenant promise, uh, he uses language of the Abrahamic covenant. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord your God will call. There are those three categories that are categories of inclusion in the covenant in the context of uh, baptism. That's a separate discussion. Um, but the language is clearly Abrahamic covenant language. And so Peter here in these two sermons has linked together uh, Adam, Abraham, Moses and the Davidic covenant with Christ, who isn't a different covenant, 
but he's the fulfillment of every point of those other administrations. One covenant. Well, for the sake of time, I'll just point you to Galatians 3 as well. And there in Galatians 3, you see a similar thing done by the Apostle Paul. He ties the law, that is the Mosaic covenant, to the seed, Adam and Abraham, uh, that's uh, tied to the seed in verse 19, specifically to Abraham in verses 8 and 9, 15 through 18. Um, and to the new covenant in Christ, verse 24. In fact, it's there where the new covenant in Christ and the law are not pit against each other as enemies, but rather the law was originally given to be a tutor to lead you to Christ. Those who have turned it into a works righteousness thing, Paul is uh, saying, got it wrong all along. The Jewish, uh, the Judaizers who believed in salvation by works weren't rightly understanding Moses. They were twisting it. The law given by Moses is a law of gratitude, a law uh, that's a guide, a law that is a tutor to bring us to Christ. And all of that in Galatians 3 is talked about in terms of the covenant, verse 17, covenant singular. Again, all these things being woven together. Not many covenants of grace, but the covenant with different administrations. I've no doubt I've probably gone long today. I apologize for that. Let me just conclude this thought on covenants with some book recommendation. Um, I think I recommended this with our last video, The Covenant of Grace by Calvin Knox Cummings. It's a very short uh, pamphlet. I believe it's 30 pages long. Unfortunately, it's out of print, but you can go to, the, to opc.org, the website of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and under resources, you can find a free PDF of this booklet if you're interested in an introductory look uh, similar to what I've been trying to do here. Um, but in terms of the next step up, if you want to dig a little deeper, um, a, a great little book. I'm still in the middle of reading it, so I can't uh, guarantee everything's perfect in this book. But what I've read so far has been excellent. John T. Rhodes, Covenants Made Simple, Understanding God's Unfolding Promises to His People. Some excellent sections. I love the chapter on the Law of Moses. So I would highly recommend this. Next week, we'll come back and look at the third pillar of the Reformed uh, tradition. I uh, hope you have a great week.